Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Mental health needs in this country affect many Americans, from depression to substance abuse. Reaching out for help is not always an easy thing to do. Later this hour, we learn about mental health first aid. It's a course anyone can take. It helps someone recognize signs of mental illness and ways to encourage your loved ones and others to get help. It's a course that helped Waterbury resident John Martinez after he lost someone very close to him last year in the Pulse nightclub shootings in Orlando. We'll hear his story coming up. But first, college campuses have faced greater scrutiny in recent years to address troubling incidents on campus, whether it's a sexual assault or a hate crime. Each college or university handles these incidents differently. In September, lawmakers and others were questioning administrators at the Coast Guard Academy in New London over issues of accountability after a story surfaced that several minority cadets described daily discrimination on campus, including racially charged language, and that the perpetrators faced no discipline. Now, in recent weeks, attention has been centered on the University of Hartford after a disturbing incident between two young women who were roommates. Now, are you a student at the school or an alum? What's your reaction to this story? 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. To tell us more, we're joined in studio by WMPR education reporter David DeRoche. David, welcome back to the show. Morning, Lucy. We know last month there was a, uh, a white University of Hartford student. Her name was Brianna uh, Brianna, Brianna Ray Brochu, and she was arrested after bragging on social media that she'd harassed her black roommate. Now, this was not just verbal harassment, but it went pretty deeply mm. into some behavior that many of us would think is abhorrent. Talk mm. a little bit about that. Yeah. So apparently the, the roommates had not been getting along for quite some time. Um, and it's, it just escalated to the point where some of these really uh, horrific things were taking place. Um, now, uh, Brianna Bro- Brochu had posted some stuff on, on Instagram, uh, but she posted it the day that her roommate was moving out. So her roommate um, started moving out on the 17th. And as her roommate was moving out, um, uh, uh, Brianna Brochu allegedly posted something on Instagram describing some pretty graphic things. Um, I'll just read this Instagram post that the police are using in their prosecution of her. Um, so basically she says, after one and a half months of spinning in her coconut oil, putting moldy clam dip in her lotions, Putting her, toothblu- putting her toothbrush places where the sun doesn't shine, and so much more, I can finally say goodbye to Jamaican Barbie. So obviously some pretty um, pretty horrific uh, claims there. Now, Brochu says that she was lying about a lot of that stuff, that she was just trying to be funny. Um, she has admitted to um, putting used tampons on her backpack and licking her dining utensils. So it, it still is a pretty horrific incident. Um, but... Um, uh, the, the girl, the, her roommate who moved out did not find out about these things until somebody showed her this Instagram post. And then she realized, oh, wow, this is why I've been sick. I've not been feeling well. Obviously, there's been some, some significant problems. And the, the incident just sort of escalated from there. Now, uh, the roommate that was targeted, she went on Facebook right. and talked about this. Tell us how um, what she said and how the university responded. Right. So... The um, she moved out on October 17th, I believe is the date, and um, the university had not uh, responded um, about this incident, um, even though 
Uh, once the university had responded, once the university found out, they say that they acted quickly, that they informed the police, and that charges were then brought against Brianna Brochu. They were um, breach of peace and, um, and criminal mischief charges, both misdemeanors. Um, but we can, we can talk about that more later. Um, but um, so she was arrested on the 17th, but the university didn't relate any of this information to the broader university community. And, um, and Chanel Rowe, the, the roommate who was, uh, who was the alleged victim in these acts, um, went to social media because she felt like the university was sort of sweeping in under the rug. And so she posted this long video on Facebook describing um, this, this, this issue she had with her roommate and describing all the things that she had done. And the day after she posted this video to Facebook, the university came out with a response um, and called the incident bullying. And I think by calling it bullying, I think more students got upset. They're like, this is more than bullying. This is this is a hate crime. She was obviously targeting her because of her race. Um, and the university has really been reeling, having a lot of meetings. They post they uh, they sent out numerous statements after that after the Facebook video posted um, several statements discussing you know the the abhorrent nature of this of this incident um, calling it reprehensible um, calling for the need for community discussions but students still really feel like it was more lip service than anything and um, and I got a lot I talked to a lot of students who tend to seem feel like um, a lot of these sort of incidents tend to get swept under the rug so you went on campus tell us about one of the students you spoke with so I got invited onto campus by a student. And I, I went and I was speaking with Alexia Maitland. She's president of the Black Student Union, and she sort of addressed what, I'm, what we're talking about. And I feel like the university, whenever there's something that they think can affect their public image, it's swept under the rug. Why does it take us going public on social media for us to get a statement from someone? Now, when you went on campus, you mentioned first you talked about the charges. So let's talk about that. Uh, people say that this is a hate crime. But mm. when we look at the charges that she faces, uh, brochure, brochure, mm. anything related to bias or hate incident? Right. That's what's interesting. And I think there has been maybe perhaps some misinformation or at least some misreading of, of the information that's been reported. Uh, so the West Hartford police were the ones who filed the charges, and they filed two misdemeanor charges against her. Um, but after they had filed these charges, they uh, recommended f um, adding an additional bigotry or bias charge, which is, is a hate crime charge. Um, but there ha those charges have not been filed against Brochu. Now, the state's attorney's office, has don't, they don't comment on pending cases. Now, usually what happens when there's a criminal, um, as, I, as I understand it, usually what happens when there's a, a criminal case um, the state's attorneys and the police will work together to determine what are the charges that are sufficient um, that we can, you know, sufficiently charge somebody with and, and uh, based on the evidence. So it's strange that they would recommend two charges and then come back and say, oh, we want to add this hate crime charge. Like, why didn't they just add the hate crime charge initially? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and you can speculate all you want uh, that it was pressure, that they had to do it because it's based on pressure. But at the moment, no hate crime charge has been filed against her. And these two charges, misdemeanors? They're both misdemeanors, the Class B misdemeanors. And she's an 18-year-old. She doesn't seem to have a criminal record, not that I could find. Um, and so it, it, my, my guess would be that she would plead um, for accelerated re rehabilitation, which is sort of like a, um, a, a, a program where you don't serve time, but you have probation. You have to you know, do certain community service hours. But um, that all depends on how this shakes out. If, if the hate crime charge does come down, that changes things considerably because that's mm -hmm. a felony. Now, so just to clarify... Uh, People are seeing this, not all people, but some are seeing this as a hate crime. Do we know if this this uh, former student at UHart will be charged with a hate crime? You know, it's it's really hard to know. Um, you, you know, the language of, of the of the statutes, um, you know, is pretty clear. You know, the, the acts have to be, uh, um, you know, uh, made toward intimidating or they have to be racially um, motivated. 
Um, and, and, and there seems to be enough evidence. You know, I, I haven't seen the, the full police report. Um, but, you know, the NAACP has, uh, has been calling for this hate crime charge. You know, they were the ones who pushed for to have this. this um, uh, they were one of the groups that pushed to have this charge be included in the criminal statutes um, a while ago. And they're saying, look, we, we fought to get this statute enacted. It's useless if we don't actually use it. And in this case, they argue that um, there's enough evidence to have a hate crime charge. My understanding is that the NAACP has met with the state's attorney's office um, to discuss this. But again, I'm not sure where they are in that process. This is where we live. We're talking about a story out of the University of Hartford, a troubling story. You've probably seen the headlines. It garnered national attention mm-hmm. uh, because of a, uh, a disagreement between roommates that escalated to a point where you had uh, one student, Brianna uh, Ray Brochu, uh, putting things in this other student's uh, beauty products, mm-hmm. uh, wiping bodily fluids mm-hmm. on her um, her uh, her personal items. I mean, it's, it's very troubling. But the, the big question also is, in terms of transparency, University of Hartford is a, a private school. Right. And so uh, there's students on campus that want to see certain things happen. Uh, there have been statements by administrators of uh, the school. We should note that we reached out to the president, uh, Gregory uh, Woodward, um, and his office declined to come on the show today. Uh, but there's always a question of how do these incidents, how are they handled, and what how how clear do these uh, institutions have to be in, mm. in how they're handling and responding to something right. like this? Right. And you, to your point, you know, this is a private institution and transparency, transparency requirements are not the same as a public school. And so when I was invited to the campus, I was with a student and I was anticipating, you know, reporting from the from outside the, the buildings, which is, you know, a little bit safer, still private property. But, you know, um, I you know, was not expected to get booted. But as soon as we walked into the building, I was like, well, you know, this is private property. I probably will get kicked out. I was sort of expecting that. But given that I was invited by a student, I was like, oh, well, maybe they'll be flexible. So I'm speaking to a student. I was speaking to Alexia Maitland, again, president of the Black Student Union. And she was sort of describing the breakdown of policy. She's like, I don't think there are policies or procedures to handle these sort of things, these sort of things, because when they happen, um, nobody tends to find out about them through the official university channel. So we're going to play a cut where I was, she was explaining this to me, and then we get interrupted by a woman named Delois Lindsay, who uh, basically says, you're not supposed to be here. And I feel like for an incident like this, they didn't have protocol, so they made things up. And if they did, I would like it to be... Communication would like you to leave, because this is private property. And you have not been invited here, and they don't know you're here. Okay. Well, I was invited by a student. The Office of Communication wants you to leave. Okay. Fair enough. And I just think it was interesting. You know, I understood that I, you know, I could have gotten the boot, but just sort of how they handled it. Um, you know, she had come in earlier and said, um, "Why are you here?" And she told the students to be careful what they say to me. And then she came back later, you know, kicking me out. And I, again, I understand why I was I was asked to leave, but I think the method in which it was handled, you you could sense that there was. Um, a a uh, a desire to really keep this in house, you know, to keep this to keep all these issues sort of under wraps as much as possible. After this story uh, blew up, so to speak, on social media, got a lot of attention. There was a big community meeting on campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, media was not um, allowed to come on to campus for it, but uh, students were able to talk to administrators. Um, I hear now that there's an action plan that the University of Hartford is uh, hoping to move forward on. Can you talk us walk us through what they're looking to do to improve climate yeah. past this incident. Sure. So they have had a lot of meetings. They have been public posting uh, a lot of public statements. 
Um, and to their credit, um, you know, it seems like they, they really are taking this seriously. Um, uh, and, and part of the action plan is to hold a lot more meetings, um, have a lot more discussions. Uh, the president has said we're going to have weekly discussions with students um, and faculty separately, but they'll have he'll have weekly discussions every Friday um, to discuss these sort of issues. And some of the bigger things that they're trying to do is they're actually going to review their policies and procedures around handling these sorts of incidents. Um, they're going to set up a new website. Um, they're going to promote this app called um, Live Safe app, which is a, an anonymous reporting app that students can use to report um, incidents of, of bias or discrimination. Uh, they're going to have, uh, they're going to review the bias training for staff. They're going to have a committee to look at um, enhancing diverse staff. Uh, so there, it's a lot of a lot of talking, a lot of um, meetings, but um, certainly the review of the policies and procedures, I think, is probably significant. What they end up finding, um, I'm not sure if they're going to make that public, but we'll find out. Um, what is interesting is the woman who kicked me out of University of Hartford is on one of these um, committees um, to, to sort of look at um, diversity, inclusion, and equity on the campus. So uh, a lot of stuff happening and it, it, students tend to sort of be um, reticent to say, this is going to lead to something meaningful, or is this just more lip service? So I, I find the students are a little bit split in terms of their optimism of whether or not this action plan is meaningful or not. We just have a couple minutes left. Uh, David DeRoche, WMPR's education reporter. Um, is this issue on campus isolated, or you've also reported on some, some other issues related to former faculty? Right. So... And I think just broadly speaking, before we address that, I think broadly speaking, um, you and I talked about this earlier, uh, these issues sort of have been happening for, for a very, very long time. And they're only sort of coming to light because of attention um, being brought to it by movements like the Black Lives Matter, um, where uh, people are actually finally you know, calling out issues of discrimination and, and, and bias, and they're becoming more public. So it's certainly not isolated at the Hartford University of, Campus, University of Hartford campus. And what's, what is interesting is that um, a, a former philosophy, philosophy professor there is suing the school on numerous sta- under numerous statutes um, alleging uh, discrimination. He says that he was stalked for seven years by a student and the administration did nothing. Um, and the same alleged student stalker was stalking a white staff member at the school and the university handled it. This is in, in his, one of his allegations against the school. He says that he found um, swastikas ta- um, written on bathroom stalls the day after the 2016 president presidential election with um, the words Hitler. Um, they lied about Hitler scrawled on the wall. He alerted the university and the university never told the wider community about it. They would they would send out communications to the university community and talk in broad language um, in generic terms about, you know, the need for um, for diversity and inclusion. But they not they did not address this specific incident. Um, so he found he he was also um, uh, open about their sort of desire to keep issues that are controversial under the rug and not even communicate them to the uh, to the broader community. So yeah, it's definitely not something that's just restricted to the student body. And you've reported on that case, and we'll uh, tweet out a link at where we live to learn more about that story. Uh, David DeRoche, WMPR education reporter, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, coming up, we hear from a Waterbury resident about how he was affected by a tragic loss. John Martinez became depressed, but eventually found something that helped him acknowledge his own mental illness. We're going to hear more about that. And you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There are more families in this country who are dealing with the sudden wrenching loss of a loved one after a horrific mass shooting in Sutherland Springs, Texas, last week. 
Now, grief is a process that can take many forms and can impact a person's mental health. John Martinez knows this firsthand. Last year, he lost his beloved partner, who died at the mass shooting inside the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. John has gone through a difficult journey addressing his own mental health, and he says he wants to help others. He joined us in studio late last week. I asked him to take us back to that day last year, hours before the horrific shooting at the Pulse nightclub. I was supposed to go to the club that night, and that's what's scary about it. Um, and one of my friends actually graduated, and he, he was moving, she was moving to California. And I ended up going to her goodbye party. And my friends were actually upset at me because I didn't want to go. It was Latin night. And they were all white kids. And I'm like, the only Puerto Rican. <laughs> and they're like, come on, you have to. It's going to be salsa and stuff. You like that. Uh, I'm always alive for the party. So they wanted me to go. And I was like, no, uh, my friend's leaving. I'm going to just go to a goodbye party. They ended up going to another club, which is uh, part of my house, which is a couple of blocks away from Pulse. They were still upset at me. <laughs> they still didn't get, end up going to Paul's. That morning, I wake up to... So the morning after? Yeah, to a whole bunch of text messages from my mother, my brothers, teachers, coworkers, my old bosses, coworkers from here in Connecticut, there in Florida, because I would talk to my mother whenever I would go out or... Uh, have fun with my friends. Uh, I'll be back around this time. I'm going over here. She knew I frequented Pulse, <laughs> so I can only imagine what she felt uh, just looking at the news and seeing that the club that her son frequents. And uh, I called her. Uh, I told her I was okay. I'm fine. Uh, then I called my friends to make sure they were all right. They were okay. They come over. My house gets flooded uh, with people. Uh, we are all sitting in front of the, the TV. You know, we see how they found a couple bodies from this number to that number. They didn't have any names. And then they start saying the names. And when his name comes up on the TV, <laughs> I just get up and I go outside and I smoke a cigarette. Because I'm everybody's support system. Everybody relies on me to take care of them. But what do I do when everybody's relying on me? I rely on a cigarette. <laughs> so I go outside and I'm shaking and I, I just went into this depression. They left. I didn't want to go to work. My car stuff was happening. It, it was like everything at once. And I didn't know why I was feeling that way or why it was happening. I didn't know. And you don't know how to ask for help. Because if you don't know what the problem is, what do I need? Uh, who who provides it? Uh, how do I search for it? That's mm -hmm. how it started. Yeah. Your boyfriend, you said that you were uncomfortable telling his story because mm -hmm. of his family. Mm -hmm. uh, but what do you want us to remember about him? I always used to joke with him and call him a mama's boy. <laughs> I just want everybody to just remember to love everybody. I know he was really close with his mother, and I know that right now I'm, I was going through stuff with my mother, and what helped me better that relationship with her was just remembering what how he was with his mother, because right now she doesn't have him. Mm -hmm. You said that you were everyone else's support. Did anyone yeah. put two and two together that you know, you're you no, know, someone that you cared about was one of the victims? I told two of my friends. Uh, but I, I'm very private with my life. A lot of people didn't even know I was in a relationship. First of all, when I started uh, with Shane, that's his name. When I started with him, he was in the closet. 
So I couldn't tell a lot of people. You know, so that that was like one of the things that also like I can't even be vocal about it because I didn't know how comfortable he was. I didn't know how like should I talk about it? They're gonna ask me his name. So I couldn't. You know, it wasn't something that I just talked to anybody. So you couldn't even tell your family? No, no. I told my family when I got to Connecticut. So you dealt with the news by smoking a cigarette, but mm-hmm. you were. <laughs> You were getting more and more depressed, and, oh, yeah. and how bad did it get, John? Uh, where it was just me with my headphones, because I don't know. I felt like the music that I was listening to, I don't know, like "Mary the Night" uh, was my song. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a Gaga. Song. Yeah, this is a Lady Gaga song. <laughs> yeah, where she just basically, uh, I don't know, just tells you to to be happy with the bad things that are in your life don't run away from the bad emotions don't run uh don't try to mask it don't try to lie it don't try to uh, call it a different name than what it is just call it how it is deal with it and it's just part of your journey you know if you if you had that moment in your life where you fell down just get up and continue walking it's part of your journey and it creates who you are mm-hmm. you know you mentioned that you started to fall into depression and you were listening to music. You weren't mm-hmm. talking to others about what you were feeling. So when was the breaking point for you where you knew you had to reach out for help? Where I couldn't lie anymore to myself. I used to go out, party, drink, uh, trying to get that synthetic happiness. You're I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy. Uh, I have people around me. Uh, uh, I'm going. I'm going to the club. I'm drinking. But you get home, and um, the issue is still there. The breaking point was um, when I didn't have a house. Uh, I didn't have a car. I didn't have money, and I just called my friend, and I was just like, "Oh my God, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Where, how do I get out of here?" And when I stopped lying to myself, I was like, "You don't have money. You don't have a job. You don't have anything. You know, just." Just call. <laughs> Just ask for help. So that was my big point. Yeah. And your friend told you to, to call your mom? Oh, no. Uh, my mother called me 10 minutes after. She's like, I got a plane ticket for you. <laughs> I know you told your friend not to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good friend. <laughs> yeah, I know you told him not to tell me, uh, but I'm here. You know, I'm like, all right, whatever. I got to get on, on the plane in the morning and go. <laughs> and that's what I did. And here's where I'm at. <laughs> so your mom got you a plane ticket mm-hmm. and you came back to Connecticut. How mm-hmm. long ago was that? Uh, November of last year. Mm-hmm. A year ago. So you, mm-hmm. you were able to talk easily then with your mom, with other relatives? Or? No. So talk, walk us through that I process. I came here and I was still in my room. <laughs> I came here... Uh, my mother knew there was something wrong with me. I was constantly like arguing with her. <laughs> I didn't want her to be in my room, you know, just leave me alone. And she just, what the hell is wrong with this kid? <laughs> you know, she was like angry at me. And I'm like 25, acting like a 16 year old. <laughs> when you don't have control, that's what a kid feels like when he's throwing a temper tantrum, when he doesn't have control. And when you're an adult and you don't have control over your life, you throw the potentials, you know? And I didn't know what I was doing, and she didn't know what I was doing, how to deal with it. And I didn't know how to deal with it. I was just like, oh, I just want to be by myself. 
So you yeah. tried to, to carry on. Um, mm-hmm. You were still isolating yourself in a way. But when did you yeah. first get help where you felt comfortable talking about this? Because you know uh-huh. people listening to this story, there's probably someone yeah. listening right now that's you know dealing with the same kind mm-hmm. of issues and doesn't know how to, to I, talk about I it. I say like the relationship between me and my brothers uh, grew stronger. Uh, I was never really close with them uh, growing up. I don't know, but when I came back, I felt like when I was in Florida doing my growing up, they were here doing their growing up. And life circumstances just brought us together. Mm-hmm. I just had somebody, because I didn't have friends, you know, to talk to, or I wouldn't talk to my mother or my older siblings because they didn't have the same mindset, you know? And I don't know, my brothers are more understanding, my younger ones, mm-hmm. they're younger, and I feel like the older crowd, they have, they can't really connect with other people as easily as millennials, <laughs> I would say. So uh, I had like a support. So I didn't even know that that's something that's really important. Uh, but I created my own support system, you know, and that was my siblings, my younger brothers and their girlfriends and the friends I started creating. And that I created my own support system without even knowing. And I would talk to them. And it was because we were going through similar issues or I would see that, you know, they have a relationship and I would see them arguing and I'm like, wait a minute, don't argue. You know, this is how you have to solve it because yeah, just make yourself, surround yourself around positive people, people that care about you. So how soon um, after you moved back to Connecticut um, that they all realized that you had lost someone that you loved? I told people one at a time. I didn't tell everybody at once. Yeah. But a couple of months after. But you still needed help with the grieving process. It yeah. comes in many different stages. Uh, you were a student at Naugatuck Community mm-hmm. College, and you heard about a class, a program. Mm-hmm. Walk us through what what you heard and how it helped you. I, I was walking down the hall, and I just see a flyer that says mental health first aid, and I'm going to school for human services and social work. So I'm like, this is something I should, you know, just go and, and take this be all right, you know, the three-year uh, uh, certification, good to have. I go in with the mentality of, you know, I can just learn about this uh, group of people, you know, a certain community, you know, I'm not part of it, you know, because I'm not. That's why everybody believes. Uh, reality is that one in every five people are affected by mental health. Directly or indirectly, you're going to be dealing with it. That's the truth, but we don't want to accept it again. Uh, so I just go in there thinking I'm going to learn uh, some stuff about some people, and I end up learning a lot of stuff about this person. <laughs> they tell you the symptoms, uh, what to look for, even if it's not in yourself within other people. What do they do? do are they distancing themselves? Why? Symptoms of depression? Yeah, exactly. And like a lot of people just get caught up on what the person is doing instead of why they are doing it. You know, okay, they're distancing themselves. They're, they don't want to talk to anybody. They seem lazy. Don't just call them lazy <laughs> and, you know, antisocial. You know, why are, why are they changing? What has changed? Why are they this way towards me? Are they this way towards everybody? Do they never leave the house? They used to be happy all the time. What changed? They, we're just, we live in an era of commentators, and everybody lo- loves to watch and comment, but do nothing about it. And everybody needs to like cut that out and get up and do something about it. 
So after taking that class, uh, you realize this is me. I'm dealing with depression. Yeah. So did you feel more comfortable talking about that um, and then reaching out for help, going to see a counselor? When I came back, and I tell you how I was going through the whole process in my room by myself, I went through a process of like isolation that kind of helped my helped me find who I am. Uh, yeah, I just uh, made myself uh, busy, my schedule, have classes, have people, uh, surround myself with positive people. Uh, and that's something that's really important if you are going through something like this. You're also very open talking yeah. about something very personal. Yeah. Uh, you're making an effort to let people know that, that they're not the only ones. Yeah, because they're not. This happens to everybody. Not everybody. I didn't mean to say that, but it happens to anybody. Uh, you don't have to go through something like losing somebody uh, in a mass shooting to go through depression. You know, it just that's my story. Uh, it can be losing a job. It can be losing a, a, a relationship. Uh, it doesn't even have to be losing. It can just be stress. It can be your, your, your daughter is getting married. It can be anything. It can happen to anybody. One, again, one out of five people, a four-people family, one of them probably is suffering from something. So they should be comfortable yeah. asking for yeah. help, even and if it's an ear to listen yeah. to Yeah, and if you do get trained, this is not just get trained and see if I have depression. You know, I self-diagnose myself. Just this is so you can have the tools that you need to help out your coworker, your brother, your your church leader, uh, anybody. Uh, again, we live in an era where we, we're not, our state, is going through stuff, our country is going through stuff, and our world is going through stuff, and we each have to do something about it. We need to wake up and do something. This is a way that we can. If you don't have time, just take eight hours of a month, get trained, and then you can carry that with you your whole lifetime. It can help people. I started in the interview talking about this latest mass shooting that happened in Texas. Mm -hmm. When these events happen and they're in the news, how does that impact you personally? This is not the first uh, terrorist or shooting that I've been uh, close to. Uh, when I was younger, I used to live in the Bronx when 9-11 happened. I was living here when Sandy Hook happened, and I was living in Orlando when p the Pulse shooting happened. I don't know how many times this has to happen again for people to wake up. I don't know how many times it has to happen again for people to say, this is us. This is not a Muslim thing. This is not an Islam thing. This is a people thing. This is an American thing, and we're not doing anything. We love to, again, comment on what people are doing, what people are not doing. But what are we doing? What are we not doing about it? You know, just do something. It makes me upset because I know everybody can do something about it, but nobody is. Everybody is sit feeling comfortable just talking about how everybody else should do something. So, yeah, it makes me upset. But um, recommending that uh, people listening look up mm. mental health first aid, take a class yeah. where they can learn not only to help with something that might be happening with them, but to help yeah. their neighbors, their friends, their family. Everybody. Just educate yourself on being a, a nicer, kinder person. That's it. Eight hours every time. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. That was Waterbury resident John Martinez talking about what led him to eventually seek support for his depression after losing a loved one in the Pulse nightclub shootings in Orlando last year.
John talked about mental health first aid. Have you heard about it? Have you taken a course? If so, how has it helped you or someone you know? After the break, we'll learn more and take your calls. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We know many of you tune in to Where We Live on your car radio or stream us live at WMPR.org. If you can't listen live mornings at 7 or evenings or mornings at 9, rather, and evenings at 7, you can subscribe to Where We Live on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any podcast app. Now, before the break, we heard from Waterbury resident John Martinez. John went through depression after losing someone in the Pulse nightclub shootings last year in Orlando. He's a student at Naugatuck Valley Community College, and as he told us, while there, he saw a flyer about an eight-hour course called Mental Health First Aid. Have you taken it? How has it helped you or someone you know? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me now in studio is Valerie English Cooper, a community educator and certified mental health first aid instructor with Mental Health Connecticut. Valerie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us, Lucy. Uh, we heard uh, John talking very candidly about what he went through and really crediting uh, mental health first aid as helping him figure out uh, what was going on and to move forward. Tell us exactly what it is, Valerie. First, I have to do a shout out to John if you're listening. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, mental health first aid is actually an international training Uh, founded in 2001 in Australia. It's been in the United States for just 10 years, um, managed by the National Council for Behavioral Health. Every instructor in the United States is trained by the council. Um, It's an eight-hour certificate training uh, designed for anybody. Um, There is no particular prerequisite or required educational background for the training. Some people consider it something like a CPR for the mind. Um, And it's designed to first get everyone on the same page with regard to what is fact about mental health and mental wellness and mental illness. Um, It also provides people with tools to identify when someone might be developing a mental health problem or might be in crisis. And um, one of the most important things we teach is how to create um, a safe space, uh, how to use communication tools to allow someone to feel comfortable sharing what they're experiencing. Um, Another way that people describe mental health first aid is um, that it's a community conduit to care. Uh, And that care can take many forms. As you heard from John, Um, despite his trauma, he was able to process his trauma using a lot of self-help tools and using community and using his social supports. Um, Many people need professional help. Um, So help and support does come in many different forms. The one thing this training does not do is teach people how to be diagnosticians or how to identify the correct kind of treatment. Um, In in many ways, we do the opposite. We teach people the dangers of labeling, because let's face face it, we're usually wrong. 
Um, we teach people not to jump to conclusions or make assumptions. Uh, how many times do we say, oh, she's so OCD or he's, bi he's bipolar? We teach people that that's not helpful, and we don't have the credentials to do, do any kind of diagnosing. Um, so, um, so, so we um, really teach people how to reach out to help. So the labeling adds to the stigma? <clears throat> yes, it does. Labeling adds to the stigma, and, um, and that's a big problem in mental illness because people don't feel comfortable sharing. Um, people feel comfortable sharing that they might uh, have a diagnosis of asthma or, or they have a broken arm, and they, how long do we wait to get a broken arm addressed? Mm -hmm. um, but people don't feel comfortable sharing their mental illness. Mm -hmm. In studio with me also is Luis Perez, president and CEO of Mental Health Connecticut. Welcome back to the show, Luis. Thank you for having me back. Uh, we heard, always a pleasure. We heard Valerie say that this actually started uh, in Australia back in 2001. So wh when did this happen where it was coming to the U.S. and how your organization is helping facilitate these trainings around the state? Sure. Well, you know, we, we uh, often wait until stage four before uh, we... Uh, seek help for a mental health condition. And it was recognized that we, number one, there's a shortage of mental health professionals in the country. Uh, we also uh, recognize that um, people, um, by breaking down the stigma of mental health conditions, we can uh, reach more people and have them self-identify and be able to seek help. A good mental health system, of course, needs to have prevention, um, early identification, early intervention, and access to services. So we need people out in the communities to be able to uh, help us with that preventive uh, piece and also helping people to early uh, self-identify. Valerie, um, we heard John say that you don't have to go through this uh, terrible trauma, like losing someone in a mass shooting, uh, to uh, go through or experience uh, a mental health issue or illness. Uh, walk us through that a little bit. So if someone is listening now and, and they know of someone who's dealing with some stress or uh, their behavior has changed, they don't know how to reach out, how would going through mental health first aid help them engage with that person? Um, well, in a lot of different ways. First of all, we do talk about some of the warning signs and some of the signs and symptoms uh, that someone might be struggling. Um, but it, people get confused. Well, how can we help someone if we don't know what they're struggling with? Um, we teach people really just to look at the impact of that struggle. Uh, look at the disruption of, of home life, of relationships, of ability to carry out work or uh, participate fully in school or just to do what we do in our lives. Look at that impact and then we, we say what we see and express concern in a non-judgmental way and reach out and ask how we can help, say that we've noticed these impacts. And um, if I could just piggyback onto something Louise said, um, we do have a lot of focus on stage four when illness comes to a crisis situation, more so in me mental illness than in other illness. When people first develop diabetes, they get on it, they alter their lives, they make sure their diet's okay, take medication as needed. But with mental illness, one very disturbing statistic in Connecticut is that the leading cause of hospitalization, which would correlate with crisis, right, between those age five to 55, is mental health disorders. As recently as 2012, 
It was respiratory illness. So we need to kind of get in front of that, as Louise said, and start preventive practices. And if we do th two things, um, well, first of all, uh, among people, adults, who have mental illness, um, less than half in any given year use services for those mental health disorders. Among college students, 80% of college students with a mental health disorder are not seeking help for that disorder, 80%, four out of five. But we do know from studies that most people are more likely to seek help if encouraged to do so by someone they know and trust, hence this training. Uh, this training does two things. It creates a societal substrate where people have a better understanding of mental illness. Um, we debunk myths. Uh, we only focus on evidence-based information, thereby, and, and we actively debunk some of the most prevalent myths out there. You mentioned uh, the importance of connecting with services. I wanted to go back to Luis Perez, uh, CEO again and president of Mental Health Connecticut. What does the landscape look like here in Connecticut in terms of accessing services? We know under the Affordable Care Act, uh, there was more access to mental, care, mental health care, including um, substance abuse treatment programs. What does it look like today? So that, that's, thank you for asking that. Um, Connecticut uh, is ranked number one in the country for adult mental health um, services. However, we should not rely on that ranking because um, being um, number one among um, sometimes mediocre or mediocrity is, is not a, a, a comfortable place to be. So we continue to strive towards making sure that access and funding for that access is available. As I mentioned earlier, access to services is not just having um, to wait three months for a, an appointment. We still are experiencing a great deal of delays in terms of people being able to access help when they are ready to accept that help. And um, we have also discovered that people that uh, are in the public sector receiving services from the public sector, Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, for example, and all of their uh, private nonprofits that they contract with, are receiving a better uh, better access and better level of care than the rest of uh, Connecticut residents that are either privately or commercially insured. And that's something that we really need to work on, both on a policy level as well as in a informative uh, level. Uh, we work very, with the, very closely with the uh, Office of the Health Care Advocate to make sure um, that parity laws are being enforced that parity, uh, that insurers are not denying care that they're supposed to be uh, mm -hmm. providing. This is where we live. Today we're learning about mental health first aid. In studio with me, Luis Perez, President and CEO of Mental Health Connecticut. Also, Valerie English Cooper, Community Educator and Certified Mental Health First Aid Instructor with Mental Health Connecticut. So for listeners who want to know more, Valerie, like where they could maybe sign up for the next course, where do they go? Um, they can go to our website, www.mhconn.org. That's for Mental Health Connecticut. .org, we have a full listing of trainings. We do public trainings as well as private trainings. Um, we can accommodate anybody who would like a training. And let me just back up and say we offer the trainings free of charge through a federal grant provided by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse, Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. 
Um, we are one of over 100 grantees throughout the United States. A great amount of funding, funding has been put behind this training because the government basically wants parity between mental health first aid and CPR first aid, the latter of which 12 million people per year are certified or recertified for CPR first year. And in the 10 years that mental health first aid's been in the United States, a total of 1 million people have been trained. So we have a long way to go to reach parity, uh, but we're working hard at it. Mm -hmm. And um, we've trained in Litchfield County, greater Litchfield County, I should say, 1,000 people so far. So before this grant, and we're in, in the third year of a three-year grant, before this grant, it cost anywhere from fifty to one hundred dollars per person, but it's free right now. Why focus on Litchfield County? Good question. Um, the reason we're focused on Litchfield County, or the reason the government is focused on Litchfield County, two reasons. The government is actually doing research as part of this grant on what they call transitional youth, young people between six, sixteen and twenty-four. Um, Louise talked about access to services. In Litchfield County, there are two behavioral health specialists for every 1,000 residents. The Connecticut state average is three. That's a 50% difference, which is significant. Um, there tend to be more consolidated um, behavioral health services in more urban areas than in more rural areas. So the government was interested in supporting trainings in more rural areas in Connecticut. And they want to do research to find out the impact of this training on referrals because, as I've said, so many people are not accessing services for so many re different reasons. We recently went to a convening um, over the summer in Washington of all 100-plus grant grantees and learned that in the first year of the grant alone, over 200,000 16 to 24-year-olds were referred for services attributable to mental health first aid training alone. Mm. Um, so we're already starting to see that it has impact. It already is an evidence-based training recognized in SAMHSA's registry of uh, uh, evidence-based programs and practices. And if I could just share what the evidence is. Mental health first aid has been shown uh, through research to increase mental health literacy in communities, to increase participants' confidence in reaching out to people in need, in knowing where the area resources are, how can we be a conduit to care if we don't know where the behavioral health services are. And the fourth surprise, uh, nice surprise, is that like John Martinez, People who go through the training have a better awareness of their own mental health needs, and, and that's important because the statistics, John gets, John gets an A-plus for going through the class. In any given year, one out of five people have a mental health mm -hmm. disorder. But over the course of our lifetime, half of us have a mental, will have a mental health disorder, diagnosable mental health disorder. Uh, one of the myths about that is that once you have a mental illness, you have a mental illness. But recovery is in the DNA of our organization. Our founder over 100 years ago today would have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. He achieved recovery, went on to great financial success, and founded Mental Health Connecticut in hopes that he would help people 
achieve recovery not having to go through what he experienced to achieve recovery. We hear often that, again, we mentioned this earlier, that stigma prevents people from reaching out for help. Uh, But it does seem, and I'm curious what you've seen in in your work, Mm -hmm. uh, Valerie, that with more awareness, people are more comfortable talking about it. Do you feel like the stigma is getting cut down a little? I I have to tell you, it is so inspiring to teach these courses. And I've taught with a lot of co-instructors. We have a team at Mental Health Connecticut. And everyone says the same thing. It's inspiring. And the people in the room are inspiring, too, uh, because of their stories. If half of us in our lifetime have a mental health disorder uh, and everyone else is affected and everyone else, let's face it, we're all on a continuum of wellness at any given time, physical, mental. Let's stop separating the two. We are one body. Um, You know, it's really something that's part of and affects all of us. Luis. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Valerie that stigma is decreasing. However, discrimination of people with mental health conditions is not. We continue to uh, have barriers to access and housing, uh, barriers to access to education and employment. And this morning I was listening to uh, uh, Vice President Biden talk about his book, and he said something that really resonated for me. He said, um, without purpose, we have no hope. And that is one of the uh, areas that Mental Health Connecticut focuses the most because, again, we want to make sure that people have that access to health care and wellness. We want to make sure that people have access to housing. But most importantly, people need to have access to the opportunities in their communities, including education, employment, volunteerism, so that they can have some purpose in their life and have hope. We'll have to leave it there. I want to thank Luis Perez, President and CEO of Mental Health Connecticut. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. Also, Valerie English Cooper, who's a mental health first aid instructor with Mental Health Connecticut. Uh, It was a pleasure to learn more about this program. And I like that the catchphrase CPR for the mind. Yes. Thank you so much, Lucy. Thank you, Valerie. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, special thanks to WMPR intern Ashley Taylor. Uh, our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening.